So if you want to use your Bible or your device, we're going to read Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8, the letter from Jesus to the church at Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But faithful unto death, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the, script, the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, you'll remember that when we were looking at uh, Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, that our Lord wants us to understand that we are under his rule, even while we're on earth, as we are in the kingdom because of our submission to him. And so the church on earth with a capital C is the citizenry of Christ's kingdom. And what he wants you to understand is that it's all about his rule and his reign and not about us. And you might remember he emphasized to Ephesus, you try to say those two words in the same sentence. He tried to emphasize that they were doing a good job in some ways, but they were doing poorly in others. And what he liked best was that they were doing a good job of keeping false teaching and false gospels out of the church, but they were doing a lousy job, but keeping the body of Christ in the church, you know? So they're really good at driving certain things out, but they kind of had a habit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as we used to say in the old days. You, you want to you wanna uphold the essential doctrines of the faith, the nature of Christ, the gospel's meaning, the Lord's reign over all of our lives as Christian believers, and you want to maintain those things, but if you're not careful, you can be so legalistic that you make it impossible for people who live within the essential doctrines to feel as though they're welcome and they have room to grow. So the bottom line is, is that we want to keep dangerous false doctrine out of the church, but we don't want to be so inflexible within the church that people can't be where they are in their spiritual journey, that they can mature in the faith. So that was the message to Ephesus, basically. This message is written to the church at Smyrna, and the first thing you notice is that Jesus doesn't have any criticism for them. Did you notice that? He didn't say anything bad about them. You know, in, in the letter to Ephesus last week, he said, this I have against you, though. Right? He doesn't say anything like that to the church of Smyrna. He says, you guys are getting this right, and you're suffering for it. And he doesn't say that they're not going to suffer more or that they won't even die. They may die even. And what he tries to remind us all of in this letter to Smyrna is, is that when you focus on the main thing, it puts your suffering in perspective. And the main thing is the gospel 
And the gospel is good news for everybody. That, I, I've asked this question many times in retreats and in, in classes with, with small groups of people. What is universal good news to everybody on earth, no matter what their culture, their religion, or anything? What is the most universal piece of good news that we all want to hear that would, would, would make everybody happy if they heard the good news? And the good news is, is that death isn't the end. That when we die in this physical life, it, that's not where it ends. That's universal good news. Everybody wants to hear that because everybody dies. Everybody on earth dies. And therefore, the only really good news that really sounds like something everybody on earth needs to know is, is that through Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. That the end of your body is not the end of your existence. And this is proof of why that universal truth is so essential because the last thing Jesus says in his letter to Smyrna is you really want to be afraid of the second death. Do you hear that? The most essential thing he wants you to remember is, is that it's the second death that you don't want to confront. Meaning the death that comes after judgment. The death that comes when the resurrected dead will be judged by God and ruled and reigned over by King Jesus. And what that means is, is that some are going to die completely and forever as a second death and others are going to live eternally. And Jesus is warning them that if they get too wrapped up in their discomfort right now, they're going to miss the point that that's temporary. It only lasts for a while. Think about this for a second. If, if you're suffering right now, or you have ever suffered, I remember a couple of years ago I had my shoulder worked on, and I was up here preaching with my arm in a sling, and I got to tell you, that was painful. The first week or two was really painful, and I had to sleep in a chair, and that was terrible because I don't sleep very well that way, and it was a miserable time, and they told me it would be about eight weeks before I'd be healed enough to not think about my surgery too much anymore. And that was about right. And you know, the funny thing is, is now it's been a couple of years ago and it's a distant memory. I don't even remember the pain. I, I still have the sling and that funky pillow that I had to put under my arm, but that's all I have. And some of you have been through stuff like that where you've injured yourself or you've been sick and you were suffering for a time and, and then, you know, eventually it became a memory. And what Jesus is saying to the people of Smyrna is, is you know, even if you die, it's just going to be a distant memory one day. Once you're in the presence of the Lord, you're not going to remember even the suffering that led to your death. That's good news for all the world. That's the gospel that we can share with people who don't share our Christian culture, our Christian uh, identity or even our American Western culture. You can tell anybody about that and they might say, well, you know, we practice that belief in our system, but then the question becomes, what does it take for you to return to receive eternal life? And our gospel is the only one that offers you eternal life for free. All you have to do is claim the gift that came from God's grace Admit that you're a sinner and you need to repent. And then when you do this, you receive God's grace through Christ and you just got the eternal life 
And it wasn't about your deeds. It wasn't about you at all. It was about him and you admitting that it wasn't about you. And then you live in this new life in the Holy Spirit. Now, I went off on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but that's just like, like, like the essential good news. And these people in Smyrna were living that. And here's what the most notable difference between them and the other churches that we've, the other church we've met so far, and a lot of us is, and we learn this by going back to our theme of wilderness wandering. So now I'm going to roll the clock back for a minute. In order to help you understand what's so awesome about the Christians in Smyrna, I'm going to take us all the way back to the Exodus again. We're in the wilderness now with the Israelites, and Moses is leading them across the wilderness to the promise. And as we've kind of embraced this theme, what we've realized is we're living in a wilderness wandering time right now ourselves, aren't we? This, this is a time of wilderness wandering for all of us in the Shiloh family, all of us in the Jasper family, all of us in Midwest and the United States and in the world, we're all going through a wilderness time right now. And what does, what does God do to people that he leads into the wilderness? He's getting them to leave something behind that they didn't need and it wasn't good for them and he's taking them towards something that is exactly what they need and is very good for them. So they left behind Egypt when they escaped bondage in Egypt and for them it seemed like it was all about being the bottom rung on the ladder in the society and they thought that the best thing that could happen is God would help them to become the top rung of the society. In other words, they'd go from being oppressed to being oppressors. That's what they wanted. But what God said, no, it's not about that at all. You want to forget all that you were in Egypt because the Egypt way of being is all about your flesh and all about human government and, and man-made gods and, and it's all about pride and prestige and authority and power in the human realm, a sort of synagogue of Satan, you could say. And God says, I want you to unlearn that. I want you to completely forget that. I want you to come into the wilderness so that I can break you down and remake you. I heard somebody's going to basic training tomorrow. Our prayers are with you. Here's what they do in basic training. Anybody here been in the military? Just wave your hand if you've been in the military, right? I see a hand back there. What do they do in basic training? They break you down and remake you. They take you from who you thought you were and what you thought you were, and they help you unlearn bad habits that won't serve you well. And then they teach you good habits and good practices that will serve you and your country in this case. And I thank you for your willingness to do that. Now... What's interesting is, is God's doing basic training with the people of Israel. Perhaps he's doing basic training with us right now in our wilderness journey because it's about unlearning the old ways and learning new ways. But here's something really important to learn about this process. God doesn't like complainers. I hate to tell you this, drill sergeants don't like complainers either. They really don't like complainers, so don't complain. But God doesn't like complainers. And when I started thinking about how the people in Smyrna were so awesome, it dawned on me that the significant thing that was stated, though not said directly, was is that they just bore up with their 
suffering and went through it. They didn't complain. They just accepted that this was part of being members of Christ's kingdom. They accepted their lot because it was better to be with him for all eternity in joy and no suffering forever than to be miserable, well, or to be comfortable, I should say, on earth for a little while because you pleased people. So who's the king of your life? Is it society, recognition, cliques, associations? For the Smyrnans, it was all about Christ, and they didn't complain. What's more, they gave joy to their lives by praising God in the midst of it all. It's a pretty tall order, but let me tell you what the other thing that happens is, is when you go like the Israelites from your old ways that you keep wanting to go back to and go into the wilderness with God, and every time you complain, God cranks up the pressure a little bit more to get you to stop complaining and see how this is going to be in the future. If you get into God's program, well, something's going to give. And this is exactly what happened with the Israelites. They complained when they went into the wilderness. They complained after they'd gone uh, through the Red Sea. They complained because they didn't want to eat manna anymore. I mean, think about it. It's manna every day. You don't have to do anything to get it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to make it grow. You get food every day. Always exactly what you need. Food from heaven, no less. Your clothes never wear out. Your shoes never wear out. Every time you complain that you're thirsty, God makes water. Every time you complain because God is silent, God speaks. But every time God gets a little more impatient with the people of Israel, if you notice as the story progresses, eventually God gets downright angry with them. Well, Here's what their problem was. They complained all the time. And you know why they complained? Because they were more wrapped up in themselves than they were in what God was doing. Because that's really what complaining is. It's, it's, it, when, when people complain, they're, expre they're expressing their lack of faith. They think they're expressing their lack of faith in Moses. But what God hears is a lack of faith in God. So when you're complaining, you're expressing a lack of faith. Now sometimes, when you're, I don't know, you're standing in a line and it's not being managed very well and you start to complain, it's because you're having a lack of faith about whether or not this person who's controlling the line you're standing in is managing it well. So I mean, sometimes a complaint is a lack of faith that can be corrected. But in this case, we're talking about complaining against God and God's plan. and and you know what? God's not going to have any part of that. And what happened to the people of Israel is that each time they complained, God punished them a little more severely. And all the while, their complaints became more and more vile and venomous. They got to the point where they weren't complaining about their comfort as much as they were complaining about what they thought they were entitled to and they weren't getting. Do you think God owes you anything? I mean, really, do you think God owes you anything? You'd be amazed how many people think God owes them something. Look what I've done for you, God. You owe me. 
I can say I've given in to that temptation once or twice in my life, but you'll never forget it when God sets you straight. I guarantee you. These people kept complaining and it got to the point where they were, they were complaining because God was invisible. And so while Moses was gone, because what they were doing is they were saying, well, we can't see God, but we can see Moses, and Moses is with God, so as long as Moses is around, I guess we're okay. But what we really want is a God we can put our hands on, that we can look at and touch and, and see. And so what they did that was so much worse than worshiping a false god was that they took all the gold they took out of Egypt and they made a calf and they said, we'll call this the God who delivered us from slavery in Egypt. You see what they did? They were mad because they thought God should have been visible. They, they wanted God to be a graven image because that was easier for them to wrap their minds around. So they're intellectually lazy, they're spiritually lazy, and they dare to complain that God is too big and he needs to be contained somehow in an image. You see why God was getting increasingly impatient with them? See, we've got the benefit of learning from their experience and about 4,000 years worth of other stuff in our Bible. So we think, well, yeah, well, hey, they were dumb. Ah, but in our wilderness journey, are we not finding ourselves complaining at times? Are we not complaining about things too? I can tell you that complaining is something that any person who leads an organization of other persons is apt to hear. If you are an administrator in a school, if you're a manager at a workplace, if you are uh, the pastor of a church, or if you are a leader of a Sunday school class or whatever, one thing you can be certain of is sooner or later you're going to hear some complaining. And as I said, sometimes a complaint is a statement of a lack of faith. And perhaps it's just a matter of answering that with justification for faith. In other words, you might say, are you sure you're going to finish this on time, Pastor Dan? Because I've got some place to go at noon. And I say to you, don't worry. This will be coming to a conclusion shortly. And so I've restored your faith. And if you have more faith you wouldn't complain in the first place. But if you do, sometimes it's just because I haven't given you enough justification for faith. So it's not always the worst thing in the world. But then when we're talking about God, it's kind of on a whole other level, isn't it? And that's a different kind of complaining altogether. And so the people of Israel had taken it just a little too far one day. And apparently this was the end of it because we don't read any more about their complaining and their punishments after this. They had finally complained so bitterly against God that God allowed a plague of poisonous vipers or snakes to enter into their community, their little mobile community. And people were dying by the hundreds. They were being bitten by these things and it hurt terribly to be bitten. And then they suffered a slow, agonizing death as a result of these poisonous, venomous snakes. And it seemed as though God was sort of paying them back for all the venom they'd been spewing out at God. Because, you know, a minor complaint 
that demonstrates a lack of faith and it just indicates that it would be easier to trust that things are going to work the way that you've told me they will if you would do things to reassure me. You know, that's one thing, but you know what? People who just complain all the time, how much do you enjoy hanging around with people who are always complaining? Do you walk the other way when you see someone coming who is probably going to start complaining as soon as you give them half a chance? Nobody likes to listen to on over-the-top non-stop complaints. It's, it's like, man, what is wrong with you? You know, is, it's like, why don't you just go crawl under a rock somewhere if you're that miserable? You know, I mean, that's what you think, and I know. Because I think like that too sometimes when I'm around constant complaints. And you can imagine then that God has compared sort of figuratively all of their vile, venomous complaining with the venom of these snakes that have bitten the people. And because this seems to be when they finally got it, it sounds like this time their repentance was more genuine than it ever had been. Well, of course, you know, at this point, after a series of complaints and punishments, they've been reduced in number significantly. There are quite a few less among them. And the ones that are left say, boy, we have really blown it this time. And they repent like they mean it. Remember I said a few minutes ago, it's repentance that saves you. Authentic admission that this isn't about you. It's about God. And you are to serve God and to love God in order to receive God's grace and mercy, which is more love and service from the Lord than you could have ever gotten trying to make things work out your way. And so God tells Moses, I want you to take a pole and I want you to rig it up with a cross piece at the top and then I want you to put a serpent on the cross piece. I want you to make this cross with the symbol of their suffering on it. The symbol of their just punishment. And tell them if they'll just look to this image, the snakes won't bite them, and if they've been bitten, they will be healed. And it happens. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was put up on the cross, and he was the symbol of our suffering. He was the punishment we deserved. He was the one who took all the venom and vile, sinful, idiot, stupid things we say and do before God upon himself for our sake. And if we look to his cross, we will be forgiven. We will be saved for eternal life. What did the people in Smyrna have going for them that was so essential? They didn't complain. They looked to the symbol of their suffering and said, there's nothing I've suffered that is more terrible than what our Lord suffered for my sake. They look at their suffering and they compare it to the cross. And the cross is so much more than, than human physical 
death and torture. It is also a spiritual torture that we can never comprehend because we aren't part of the Godhead, the triune God. We're, we're, we're not one of those, so we don't know what it's like to have been eternally always together living in joy and harmony and then to have that separation placed upon one of the members of the Trinity in order to gain grace for the rest of us. In other words, Jesus suffered things that we can never fully understand, but for him it was the worst thing. So when he says to the church at Smyrna, listen up, you'll suffer for a little while, you'll even die, but when it comes to eternity, you're secure. You won't have to fear the second death. And the second death is when God says, on what basis should I grant you eternal life? And your answer immediately is because of Jesus Christ who saves me. And nothing about me. I don't even deserve his salvation, but he gives it to me anyway because he just loves me that much. And God says, come stay with me for the rest of eternity. But there will be those who won't know that answer. And for them, it'll be the second death, and that will be the final. That's what Jesus is talking about. So if I could sum this up really simply, I would just say that we are people who are wandering through the wilderness at a time when God has asked us to let go of a lot of things that we used to think were important and just forget them and relearn so that we can be ready to enter into a land of promise that is ruled by him. In other words, we're leaving behind the world of our flesh where religion is a hobby or, or a habit or, or something that we do superficially. And he's, he's saying, leave all that behind and really enter into my kingdom. But you can't come into my kingdom unless you've been stripped of all of that fleshly, worldly nonsense. You, you can't fully enter my kingdom until you leave all of that behind. And the Smyrnans were there. They were ready for that. This was the church that they wanted to be, and Jesus commended them for it. And what most of us do, if you don't mind my being so blunt at this moment, most of us are people who like to whine and complain too much, just like the Israelites. And so my challenge this week is that we would have ears to hear how much the Lord would rather hear our praise than our complaining. And understand that sometimes we take ourselves too seriously. And we take our suffering too seriously. And sometimes we take discomfort to be torture. You know, I remember when my kids were little, I, my one son, who's not here, so I'm not picking on someone that's in my room with me here, but I remember my one son, he had this dread of boredom. I mean dreaded boredom. He could not stand the thought of being bored for five minutes. He wanted stimulation every moment that he was awake, and he would only sleep with the TV on because he wanted stimulation until he fell asleep. That's just a temporary problem. And he's grown out of it, sort of. It's being recorded, dear. I, I gotta say that. I'm sorry, I was just checking to see if he was watching, you know, because I'm in trouble if you am. But 
the, the point is, is if, if you're worried about 45 minutes of boredom, you know, at church, I mean, can you, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this and then I'm going to wrap it up. Every church I've been a pastor of over the last 25 years has always had a certain number of what I call Sunday morning widows. And you know what the main reason their men stay home for is? They're terrified that they're going to be bored for an hour. It's true. They're terrified that they're going to go in there and listen to some joker stand up there and talk endlessly for 20 minutes. Now, it doesn't mean they can't stay home and listen to the sports guys running their mouths. It sounds like I'm criticizing them, but what I'm saying is the most important thing we all need to remember is it's not about us. And when we're uncomfortable, that's an opportunity to praise God and see God's reign and rule over your life. And I can tell you that if you take this message seriously, God will deal with your complaining. He's dealt with mine before. There was a time in my life not too long ago, a few years back, when I was really, really complaining to God, and I felt his thumb on my head. I mean, I literally felt the Lord push me to my knees. And when I got down to where I was like a bug about to get squashed by God's thumb, because I was all down on my knees, and I said, what's going on here, you know? And I heard so clearly, not like a voice, but just in my mind, I heard this voice in my mind say, are you done? Seriously, that, that's what it sounded like. Are you done? And immediately I said, oh God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Immediately I understood that I was complaining too much. That I was acting like I was entitled to things that I wasn't entitled to. And as if I were suffering unjustly. Who am I to say that I'm suffering unjustly? God owes us nothing. He gives us salvation and grace because he wants to. And the most passionate, loving thing we can do in return is to say yes to it. Beyond that, God doesn't owe you anything. And Jesus is saying, you guys, I love you because you're just going through life like you know there's more to this than your immediate discomfort. Comfortable people have a really hard time serving Jesus. So the message for us in the wilderness is get used to discomfort. And praise God in the midst of it. And then Jesus will give you the kind of report card that he gave to Smyrna and Philadelphia. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. And anything I've said that was foolish and reckless and out of my mouth and mind, and not your heart, I ask you, wash it from their thoughts and leave them with your spirit's impressions. For their sake and for your glory, I pray. Amen.